Kansas Reflector listeners, thank you for joining us today. I'm reporter Rachel Mebro, here with guest Mark McCormick, a frequent Reflector Opinion contributor and Deputy Executive Director of Strategic Initiatives at the ACLU of Kansas. Our topic today is the future of the Quindara Ruins Archaeological Park. The historic site was founded as a port of entry for slaves seeking free soil in the state of Kansas and later became an important stop on the Underground Railroad. Now, Mark, you've done an excellent report on this subject, 52 pages on the past of Quindaro and the future. So let's just begin with what inspired you to do this report. Well, I just want to be <clears throat> clear first about, you know, our report is not necessarily about the ruins. It's about Quindaro, the idea, Quindaro, the aspiration, Quindaro, the vision. We're talking about a place, as uh, one of our sources in the report said, um, maybe the best example of a multiracial democracy, not only in the history of the state, but to his knowledge, um, maybe anywhere in the country. Uh, you typically know what a good idea is when you wished that idea was yours. So it's not, this was not my idea. Um, my boss had just read the... Um, 1619 project and he understood my passion for history um, my uh, career as a professional journalist and a writer and was I think looking for a way that I could help advance some of our uh, campaign issues he also thought that with his knowledge of Quindaro as that um, m um minority, um, majority run uh, town, that there could be some things that could apply to the state and the nation if we revisited the history and really tried to understand it, as opposed to um, buying into all the, uh, well, let me just say it like this. Um, there's a uh, history professor at Ohio State I've really come to admire, um, Hassan Kwame Jeffries. He says that um, what Americans really care about is nostalgia, not history. That this whole notion about making America great again is really based on this nostalgic view that comes from one perception. You know, if you're African-American, um, what aspect of our nation's history was great, you know, beyond Reconstruction? So it's really about... Um, us fully understanding our history and then applying that history because uh, our understanding of history causes this kind of cascade of, of things that happen in our institutions. And if we have racism in the society, then it's going to appear in the institutions. And if we're unable to address those issues, those problems are going to persist. And that's what we're dealing with. That's kind of a long-winded answer. I'm sorry. but No, that's great. So we've talked about the inspiration. Let's talk about some of the things we're seeing today, you know, like Quindaro as a vision, but contrasted with the reality we're facing right now. What are the main issues in your report? Well, I mean, I get, I get to this um, a little bit later, but one of the things that was interesting to me is um, the history of our interstate highway system. Um, we could take credit as Kansans because uh, it was President Eisenhower who passed you know, the measure that created the interstate system. Tragically, though, what happened was that at about that time, there were efforts in local municipalities uh, to get rid of what they called blight. 
and what they called blight tended to be African-American communities. So what happened was state and local officials would run interstates through African-American areas and destroy them. That's precisely what happened in Quindaro. The state, the federal government, ran Interstate 635 right through the heart of it. Uh, as some of the people in the report said, it was a near-death blow. I mean, it displaced people, displaced churches, and you, you have a highway running right through there. And then there are all kinds of uh, health impacts. You know, if you grow up as a child near all those exhausts, you're going to tend to have a lot of uh, health problems like lung issues and things like that. Um, it was last summer that Pete Buttigieg, the uh, Secretary of Transportation, was in the area. Uh, he had also made an appearance in, on uh, 60 Minutes where he talked about how highways should connect people, not destroy communities, and that there, there was money in the infrastructure plan that the administration had been pushing that could help communities like that. And that's a broader issue of the intersection between some ugly racial history and then how we operate as a democracy. That if you go there and you see um, what you will see is an area that has been neglected, um, that's not how a democracy should look. Democracy is not just about voting, it's about everyone belonging and everyone mattering. And what we tend to do in this culture is we pitch people out when we don't like them. Uh, what we really need to do in general is just kind of pull of all of our strength inward so that we could start addressing all these issues that we have in the country. And another large section of the report focused on voting rights. Let's talk a little bit more about that. Sure. Um, a few years ago, uh, when I was running a museum, I... Uh, I took a tour group to Alabama, and we went on the, uh, the Civil Rights Triangle Tour where you can start in Birmingham, go to Montgomery, go to Selma, and you go back. And uh, in Selma, there is a monument to a Kansan. Um, the Reverend James Reeb was a Universalist Unitarian minister who was born in Wichita, who was living in Boston at the time. And uh, there was a march for voting rights from Selma to Montgomery that had turned brutal. And after that, Dr. King asked clergy from around the country, come march with me, come march with me. James Reeb left his family in Boston, came down there for the, what was called the turnaround march because they marched to the edge of that famous bridge, the Edmund Pettus Bridge, and decided to stop and turn around rather than march into the teeth of all of those um, law enforcement officers. And, you know, down there, law enforcement would deputize Klansmen and give them bats with uh, barbed wire wrapped around them. So Reeb was there for the turnaround march. While there, he was hit in the head by some segregationists, and he died. Um, Martin Luther King gave his uh, eulogy, and his, his passing helped pass uh, the Voting Rights Act. So, I mean, as Kansans, we have to be particularly sensitive about incursions into people's right to vote. That one of our favorite sons that maybe 
not everybody knows about Reverend Reeb. Uh, he didn't give his life. His life was taken because he was marching for African-American voting rights. And as we see now around the country and here in our state, voting rights are under attack. Um, our election results are so close that it doesn't take a whole lot of work in terms of suppressing votes uh, to turn an election. I mean, if you, if you can move the needle three or four points, um, you could swing an election. And what we know uh, from our voting rights work in the past is that if you uh, take down arbitrary barriers to voting, most Americans really want to vote and they really want to participate. But if you put up these arbitrary barriers, it, it can cause uh, drops in voting. Those are the kinds of things that we're worried about here. You know, we really should be working really hard to expand early voting, uh, to increase the number and ways people can vote. Um, voting on weekends, voting after hours, um, uh, allowing people uh, to leave work in order to vote. Um, those are the kinds of things that we're uh, fighting for at, at this affiliate. And then before the podcast began, we were talking a little bit about racism in this state and how people are so uncomfortable with addressing this issue. So um, years ago, I was a uh, columnist at the Wichita Eagle, and I had been following closely uh, some efforts at the African American Museum in Wichita to get the collected works of Gordon Parks. When I was a uh, cub reporter in Louisville, the Louisville Association of Black Journalists had a film festival of Mr. Parks' films, and he showed up. They didn't expect him to show up, but he showed up. And I, I was watching all these people that I admired because I was a kid right out of school. These were like mid-career people, and they looked like little kids around him. And someone said, hey, we have an intern from Kansas where you're from. And he said, really? And it startled me. And he, he walked over to me. And to this day, I can't remember what I said to the guy. But he's always been a hero. So when, I'm, when I was at... Um, um, when I was at... Um, the, the Wichita Eagle, uh, I saw that we had an opportunity to get his collected works. And um, I was partnering with someone at uh, Wichita State named Ted Ayers. Ted was the uh, uh, vice president, general counsel there, but also a big fan of Mr. Parks. And he had shared this story with me about Mr. Parks actually visiting Wichita State once because he has a good friend who's from Wichita, and that's what, what brought him to Wichita anyway. So when Ted introduced him, he read from a, uh, a poem that Mr. Parks had done called Kansas Land. I won't read the whole thing. I'll just give you a sense for uh, how talented this man was and why he's a, uh, why he's a, a hero of mine. But he writes, Nights filled with soft laughter, fireflies, and restless stars. The winding sounds of crickets rubbing dampness from their wings, silver September rain, orange-red brown Octobers, and white Decembers with the smells of ham and pork butts curing in the smokehouse. And he stopped there in the poem. 
But there's another stanza that reads, Yes, all this I would miss, along with the fear, hatred, and violence we blacks had suffered upon this beautiful land. So when Mr. Parks, after being introduced, comes to the microphone, he points out that in every single uh, instance, when he's been introduced using this poem, the people who do the introductions leave off that last stanza. It was an indication to me and to Ted at how awkward our conversations about race are in this country, how difficult it is for us to actually have a discussion, because what has happened to African-Americans in this culture has been so terrible, and we've been so unwilling and unable to confront it that these problems are going to persist, which is what I've been saying over and over, our inability to deal with uh, this, this issue, to be able to put it on the table and have a real discussion is difficult. Even now in states like Florida and in Texas, they're changing textbooks. They're referring to slavery as some kind of work program. Uh, and you're talking about, uh, well, let me put it this way. Most of us in school learned about a slave owner, we learned maybe about the slave trader, but there's a third person there that we never, ever talk about, and it was the slave breaker. Before the slaves arrived here, they stopped in the Caribbean, and they literally had the humanity beaten out of them. I don't know what kind of work program they're talking about. No one benefits from rape, which was so regular, it was almost industrial. And there was, also, there was a profit motive in that kind of brutality because the children produced from that become workers for the rest of their lives. People could be worked until they absolutely dropped. The realities behind all of this, the ugly realities behind all this, really clashes with our nostalgia that we have about the culture. And that's the real problem. We can't, we can't get past this sort of double consciousness. Like um, there was a sociologist, I think, named Gunnar Myrdal, who was writing about race in the country, and he called it a, our, our dilemma. He said, our public ideas about who we are don't match what we think personally. And that duality is, is really tearing us apart. And if you think about the issues we're facing in this culture today, uh, race still is very much at the center. And you talked about Texas and Florida. What are we doing here in the state in terms of education? Are we doing enough? Um, that's really outside my uh, knowledge base. Mm-hmm. I will say that um, it just kind of depends on the classroom and where you go. I've, I've, I spent a lot of time in schools because I enjoy talking to students. And I've been to schools that were in rural areas and that were all white, and they had astonishing history programs. And I've gone into schools in, um, in districts that were very diverse and was embarrassed at what the students were being taught. It's all very uneven. In the same way that in this state, the zip code you live in could determine your ability to vote or your opportunities to vote, I think there's the same kind of uh, randomness when it comes to uh, voting as well. I, I've lived in communities where 
I never had to wait behind more than four or five people to vote. And then I've lived in places where I had to wait two or three hours to vote. There's just a, a wide range of things. Which places were the two-hour places? <laughs> let's hear about that. Uh, I'd rather not say now. <laughs> yeah, that's totally fair. So we've talked about this wide intersection of things. Like in an ideal state, I mean, in an ideal Kansas, what do you hope to see in terms of talking about these issues? That's a really good question. Um, the challenge, again, is, uh, part, is, is in part our mindset. And until we're willing to acknowledge uh, our flaws and our biases, um, until people who have a lot of opportunity are willing to share some of that opportunity with others. I mean, our democracy really depends on um, an undergirding equality. It's sort of like, you know, in Monopoly where when one person has all the money, the game is over. And our, the inequality in our culture uh, is making it really difficult for us to manage as a democracy. So until we, until we start learning about um, who we are and who we're supposed to be civically, until we're being honest and truthful about our history – it's the point we're making in the report. Until we acknowledge those things, it's going to be really hard to advance on these other issues. So it's going to require uh, some boilerplate um, learning about our history. Not nostalgia, but we need to find ways to put historical events at the center and then examine it on the outside from different perspectives. So if you're studying World War II, you'd say... Well, what was World War II like uh, for women? Well, in Wichita, um, you'd have Rosie the Riveters who were working at uh, the Boeing plant, you know, building planes while everybody was going. If you were African-American and you were talking about World War II, uh, you could talk about James Thompson, who was an African-American cafeteria worker in Wichita, who wrote a letter to a newspaper called the... Uh, Pittsburgh Courier. The Pittsburgh Courier was an African-American newspaper that circulated nationally. And in his letter, he wrote to the Pittsburgh Courier that if we're going to go as African-Americans to Europe and fight against fascism, well, we ought to be fighting against fascism at home. So uh, there's a double victory, victory abroad and victory at home over racism. And that double V campaign became a national event. People had double V gardens and double V parades and all of that began, you know, here in Kansas. I mean, I view our state as a, uh, and I've said this a lot, as the social fault line for the country. You essentially had the civil war start here. Uh, as I just mentioned, this was a important theater for the civil rights movement. Um, this was the first state uh, to, emperor, to enter the temperance movement. And uh, this was also a, a big abortion battleground as well, that this is not flyover country, that the history that occurred here really did move the nation, which was another motivation for the report, that we felt like our history here is so important and that in so many ways we reflect the nation, 
that maybe what's pop, what's what's pop, maybe what's possible here uh, could be possible nationally. I love that. And then I actually printed out one of your quotes from the report. Um, this was from around page 16 or so. But you said, freedom, acceptance, and belonging formed the foundation of what would become the state of Kansas. Quindara was a true democracy where everyone mattered, where everyone was included, and the community shared benefits and burdens. And today's Kansas scarcely resembles its proud founding. A powerful minority continues to mount multi-pronged attacks on democratic ideals. So, I mean, again, I just love that statement. That I think it really, like, the whole thing of what you're trying to do there is kind of in that. But let's talk a bit more about that quote. Sure. What in particular about that? Oh, I just love the first bit, freedom, acceptance, and belonging. Yeah. So let's talk about the history of Quindaro, though. Again, I know it's not about the ruins, but mm-hmm. let's talk about that past. Mm-hmm. Well, um, it is the, uh, the Western Underground Railroad Trail. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a few years ago, I was at the museum. Uh, I was getting calls um, from the United Nations because they have uh, an American civil rights trail, and Topeka was supposed to be the western terminus of the American civil rights trail because of the Brown decision, right? Well, I mean, when you think about how central Kansas was uh, in the Civil War, I mean, you had you had battles taking place on our border. You had Missourians coming in and destroying Lawrence. And you had John Brown butchering people who were here to try and tip the scales in our uh, popular sovereignty vote. The popular sovereignty just meant that the government was going to make sure. Well, I mean, the government was going to allow territories to determine whether or not they would allow slavery you know, within their borders. And so there were people coming into the state uh, to vote for slavery while the people here didn't want it. We've talked a bit about the pre-Civil War history of Quindaro, but let's talk about the years since that. I mean, this this site has still, this area has just been so incredibly important in the state and nationally. Very, very important. When I was at the, uh, the Kansas African American Museum, I wrote a, a federal grant creating an African American history trail. Mm-hmm. And I can remember at the time sending someone up here to talk about Quindaro. And the person came back just thrilled about all the history here. They just didn't have anything built up. And Quindaro was an amazing place, an African-American bank. It actually was home to an HBCU called Western University. Um, I had someone tell me in the last few weeks that there's a documentary coming out that's going to argue, and among other things, um, Gospel music as we know it originated in Quindaro. The NAACP came out of the Niagara Movement. Well, two of the charter members of the Niagara Movement had Quindaro addresses. Uh, The first Native American woman to argue in front of the Supreme Court was from Quindaro. It's just incredible history there. There There was a hospital there that was the first in the region to take patients based not on anything else other than They needed help. Um, They admitted people uh, without regard to who they were racially. Uh, Just tremendous, tremendous history there. And if you go there now, it's just kind of overgrown. And to us, uh, which is why we chose to chose Quindero as the framing, that um, it's struggling. But there's all this promise there. 
I saw this history there. And if we were obedient to the history, if we were faithful to the history, um, we'd be in much better shape as a state and as a society. And we're just asking people to look to Quindaro as an aspiration um, and to call people into our democracy instead of pushing people out. I love that. And for anyone who wants to go and see this site, there's still about, I think, 20 foundations left from buildings that used to be there, a couple of outbuildings. Um, It's just a beautiful area to go to. It is. And that almost didn't happen. There was an effort in the 80s to turn a portion of that area into a landfill. And um, there's an obscure Kansas law about mineral rights that said, if you can, if you've uncovered um, foundations and the kinds of things that were found there in the ruins, um, the state had to come in as a co-owner. And as the co-owner of that site, they determined that it was of historical significance such that a landfill couldn't be put on top of it. But it was very close. So you think about 635 going through there. And then about 20 years later, a landfill almost going through there after years and years and decades and decades of of, uh, disinvestment and people avoiding investments there, uh, it's going to look like that. And there are places in our democracy that look like Quindaro that don't have to look like Quindaro if we were really uh, honoring um, not just Quindaro, but who we say we are as Americans. We're always so proud of our democracy, but... Some of us don't really want to do much about it. I love that. So more historic investment, more looking at the past for lessons. Thank you so much for being on today. Everyone should check out the report. It's on the ACLU website. It's titled Same Water Coming Round, Quindaro as a Vision for Kansas. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me.